I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Hey there, I'm Chantelle Lemieux. And I am Lynx O'Leary. You're listening to Muses. Yes, hello there. Hi. And we are part of an amazing network. Yeah, it's Pantheon Podcasts. You can listen to all of the other great podcasts over on Pantheon, www.pantheonpodcasts.com. And we are, like we said, muses, a part of that network. We give you the stories of fantastic, amazing women in rock and roll history. All facets of rock and roll history that you may not have known played such a huge role in the rock and roll history. Damn, I love what we do. I love what we do. How you doing today? Doing great. How are you? Great. Yeah, first year not back at school. It's incredible that we are recording this on the first day of school. So by the time um, our listeners hear it, it's going to be a couple weeks after because we like to be a little bit ahead of the game, you know, leave time for editing and all that. But today was the first day of school, and I did not wake up and rush and be a huge ball of nerves to get into the classroom. I am now, I've now transitioned into doing the podcast full time. And it's interesting because, I mean, I haven't been at school in over a decade, but this time of year, I still feel the anxiety of like back to school like that, that never leaves you. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And it's also like the sign of end of summer. And, you know, even when you're not affected by it, 
in your day-to-day life that is still kind of imprinted in you always yeah I'm looking forward to enjoying the fall without any any school stuff on top of that Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean with uh deadlines and just I'm just in that sort of sense I'm just it's it was good for what it was and if you hear a cat meowing it's because he's had he's been full of beans all morning it started at three o'clock this morning he's been howling to get outside he was outside this morning but we keep him on a leash and harness we're in Toronto and he's a very gentle cat so we don't want him going anywhere so well, if he meows, we might have to kick him out of the room, but there you go. But that's the last thing I'm going to say. I'm very, I'm very excited. I'm very grateful to be sitting here with you on the first day of school episodes, uh, especially when I present them, they're going to be tighter. They are going to be just the the quality is going to be better because this is what I'm doing now. This is what I'm, I've dedicated it's a new journey. That's right. Yeah, a little bit of freelancing here and there, but we're going Muses full force and we have a lot of great things planned and a lot of great interviews and a lot of ideas. And now we're going to be able to just fully focus on that, everyone. Thank you to Haley, our latest patron, our newest patron. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, for anyone else who wants to check out the Patreon for $5 extra every month, you get two more episodes on top of the episodes that we do, and they're a little different. We kind of do our own thing, just chit chat, make fun lists, talk about, you know, our, our personal lives a little more, still talk about music a lot, and uh, yeah, it's it's fun. Yeah, so if you subscribe, then you're going to have now like a backlog of yeah. things that you can go and listen to, so they're what are we 10 about, about 10 that, episodes yeah. at this point so yeah. if you subscribe then you can go ahead and enjoy what we've got so far yeah let's get to today's episode yes so we're gonna do another french beauty we did brigitte a couple months ago and now we're gonna be talking about francois hardy i really love francois she was sort of a visual muse to me growing up and still if you look at her now and see my hairdo and everything very much inspired by Francois I read her book and um, it was actually quite interesting because this episode I thought was going to be sort of one way and it kind of turned into something different so Francois has had a relationship with another French musician named Jacques Dutron Uh, And they've been together basically since the 60s. And all I knew was, you know, that fact, basically, and that they kind of had an open relationship publicly. So I thought that was really curious. And I was interested to find out how that relationship worked for them. Finding out through her book, which is, is an incredible book, it's called The Despair of Monkeys and Other Trifles interesting I'll and tell you she about the wrote title. It, right? yes yes I think she had help by a guy named John E. Graham but it's so beautifully written and I actually take so much so many chunks out of her book and put it in this episode and you'll see why because she's just so well spoken and it was interesting reading this this summer too just because I guess I've been thinking more about you know relationships and what I want or and what I'm willing to give or willing to take you know what I mean and um the way she wrote about things just trying to put myself in her position 
I was like, would I be okay with this? Would, would this be fulfilling to me? It was really interesting. And I thought it would be a really interesting episode. I hope a lot of people check out her book because even though I put quite a bit about them in it, there's so much more there and it's just so well done. And yeah, I thought this would be a cool one for us to discuss. So I'm going to talk a little bit about her career as well, but for the most part, it's sort of about this unique relationship that she has had for basically her entire adult life. Great. Did you already own the book or did you have to get it out from the library? I got it from the library. Actually, when I was in New York in June, I went to Rough Trade in Brooklyn, this great record store, and uh, they have books there and I saw it there and I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know she had a book. So I got really excited. And then when I came back uh, here, I immediately ordered it from the library. So I was looking forward to doing this one for sure. Yeah, me too. We um, also got, we both have books uh, on hold for us at the, at the library, the Daisy Jones and the yeah, Six. Yeah, so a lot of actually, people have been recommending that. You know what? I would be curious to know if people would want us to do it on a regular episode or if we should do it for Patreon. So maybe we'll do a little Instagram poll. Save it for Patreon or... Cool. Yeah. Sounds okay. Sounds good. All right. So Francois was born January 17th, 1944. She's an Aquarius. Yes. And she was born in Paris. Her mother was 23 years old and her father was a married man who was 20 years her senior. Cool. Also from a different social class. Yes. She writes that her father was pretty crazy about her mom, but that her mother never really had strong feelings for him and that it might have been more about financial security and thinking he would be a good father more than anything else. It's also, this is also an interesting thing because she also talks a lot about how, you know, genetics and what you're your childhood and what your parents go through can also affect what you go through, you know, and how you develop relationships as well. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. So she had a sister as well. Her name was Michelle born a year after Francois. They lived with their mom and their dad helped financially, but did not live with them. Uh, Francois's mother was very emotionally isolated and had a lot of issues stemming from her own childhood. Um, Francois said that her mother was never able to spend a single night with a man, including her father, who she always refused to let stay overnight. Mm-hmm. So she, I guess, had relationships, but she couldn't spend a night with a man. So when Francois was four, her dad ended up cheating on her mother, and that resulted in the end of their relationship or whatever you want to call what was going on between them. Francois and her sister would really only see their dad for lunch here and there for holidays and their mother's strictness and emotional issues made growing up quite difficult. Uh, Francois says she really loved her mother and they were as close as her mother was able to be, uh, but that her and her sister never really had a great relationships and their differences widened through the years. So she didn't really have, um, a a good relationship with her sister. Oh, okay. Gotcha. That's too bad. Yeah. Uh, her sister actually, she talks a little bit about that. Um, I think she was schizophrenic in in adulthood, and yeah, they do, they they never really were able to bond or anything. So Francois lived with a lot of anxiety and shame growing up because of her mother and her grandmother. Sounds very Brigitte. 
right yeah yeah and it's something about these french mothers it's crazy too because like that time anyone who looks at francois is just immediately enamored she's one of the most beautiful women i've ever seen but as i'm gonna quote here she says my grandmother made so many scornful observations about my physical flaws that i grew up convinced i was uglier than average so she just tested school they were jealous yeah yeah right she detested school. She was very much a loner, felt the social distinction there. Her dad paid for their schooling, but she was basically like the poor kid among the richer, something I relate to growing up uh, at Young and Eglinton, which is sort of like a rich, fancy neighborhood. But that was definitely not my case. Yeah. Same thing with me when I went to high school. Yeah. I had a rude awakening. Right? Mm-hmm. Another thing I relate to is Francois's love of reading and being alone. She really devoured books and loved creating the worlds in her mind. By the time she was a teen, the radio and music began to take on a much greater importance to her. Uh, she found a station that played American and English music, and with that came a fantasy of, you know, one day working in music herself. So her mother had much more conventional ideas of what Francois should focus on career-wise, but when Francois was 16 and she passed her exams, Francois's father offered to give her a gift for passing everything. And in Francois's words, she says, I wavered for a long time between a guitar and a transistor radio that would have allowed me to listen to my beloved English station anytime, anywhere. Why a guitar? I have no better idea now than I did then. However, my future life would flow out of this crucial choice because once I had this precious instrument in my hands, I started scratching out three chords over which I sang snatches of my own melodies inspired by my favorite English and American slow rock songs. So she chose the guitar. She chose the guitar. Cool. So Francois skipped two grades, and while she hated school, she knew the work well. This is another thing I relate to. Uh, and that really allowed her a lot of free time to work on her music. And she said by then she started writing about four songs a week, just constantly working on her craft. Uh, one day she read in a newspaper that a major record label was looking for uh, people to audition, beginners. So the audition went well, but she, they felt she sounded too much like another singer at the time. So she wasn't really top choice, but she got to hear her own voice recorded for the first time, and it gave her some confidence to keep pushing forward. Uh, shortly after that, she auditioned for the Petite Conservatoire de Mirel. Sorry, my French accent is non-existent. Um, <laughs> But that was a radio and TV program that presented singing courses given by the famous French singer Mirel. And she saw in Francois a star, and she immediately added her to the group. So Francois continued to audition and hone her craft over the years. And she had tutors and everything. And by the second time she auditioned to get a record contract, she went to a place called Vogue and they signed her immediately, a man named Jacques Wolfson. And he had recently signed another big French star of the time named Johnny Holiday. And Francois was just 17. So she had to call her mom when she was with Jacques to get permission so that he could sign her. 
So on April 25th, 1962, she had her first official recording session. One of the songs she recorded was Tous les garçons et les filles. And that became, you know, within two months, it was on the radio. Several months later, in a few television appearances, that song had sold a million copies. That's probably her most popular song of the 60s. Hmm. It's the one that you hear most often now used in like TV shows or movies and stuff like that. Oh, well, maybe we should play it. Yeah, play a little clip. French lesson. So when you see in French an I double L E, the sound is E. So the L isn't pronounced, so it's fee. Fee. Thank you. Les filles. All right. There you go. So Francois had no idea what she was into, and she wrote, I truly never imagined that the world of song would open its doors to me so easily, nor that they would close immediately on a gilded prison where, like it or not, I would spend the rest of my life. Among many other things in Francois' life, not just the music, everything was changing. With fame came money. She moved out of her mother's apartment into her own and set up her mom and her sister in a nicer place close to hers as well. She met the first love of her life, a very well-known French photographer who worked with a lot of musicians named Jean-Marie Perrier. Yeah, if it ends in ER, that's the sound A. A. You got it. Perrier. So of their relationship, Francois said this. I should point out that I barely blossomed during the four years of our relationship. This did not matter to Jean-Marie, who had the soul of a Pygmalion and tried to open my mind and help me in all domains with his characteristic generosity. He taught me to love the cinema by bringing me to see great films, and under his tutelage, I realized the importance of aesthetics, which became one of my major criteria. He taught me how to carry myself and to dress. He gave me advice on social skills, which I did not always follow, but which nagged me every time my capacity to go emotionally overboard made me forget the most elementary rule of courtesy <laughs> so Jean-Marie was only four years older than her okay but I was wondering because we tend, we tend to have these relationships quite often though yeah. even with Brigitte with the with the worldly man kind of giving her the education yeah. in, in different kinds of ways question mm-hmm. what is a Pygmalion a Pygmalion is you know like my fair lady Kind like of. Audrey Hepper. Okay, yeah. it's exactly what you just described. It's oh. the te- the teacher who turns you know the caterpillar into the butterfly type oh, okay. of thing. So yeah, they, they were only four years apart, but he had had a much wider, I guess, education growing up than Francois did. 
She says that she struggled from extreme inferiority complexes during their relationship. And since both of their careers were taking off, they had a lot of time apart, which she really did struggle with. She said, at this time, telephone communication was difficult and sometimes even impossible between one country and another. And as my personal life was on hold, I often felt down in the dumps. Between the rehearsals, the public appearances, I hid in my hotel bathrooms, and with the help of my guitar, I tirelessly attempted to out my needs and grief into my music. Mm. So she's touring for the first time, being invited to all these swanky parties and whatnot, but she can honestly barely remember it because she was so consumed with her relationship and the negativity that it caused her to feel. She really was... I guess she's a needy person. She she wants she wanted to always be with him. She didn't get enjoyment out of touring and doing all these things that she, you know, sadly should have been just because she was, you know, in her head, I guess, more focused on wanting to be with someone. Yeah, well, that's a certain kind of anxiety too, right? Yes. She's not able to fully be present in the moment. Exactly. So it was in that first year of making music that she met fellow French singer and beauty Sylvie Vartin, and the two developed a bond. Uh, Francois and Sylvie even kept a correspondence the year that Sylvie was spent in the U.S. She talks about admiring Sylvie's strength in both her career and personal life. She said she really admired Sylvie for her broad-mindedness because Sylvie was dating Johnny Holiday, the other oh. French pop singer, and Johnny was pretty public about his affairs and sylvie really did not have any jealousy she just took them for what they were just you know sex whatever like they had their relationship she was fine with that and that's something that we'll discuss a little later all right so some things began to go better for fran as well she was finally discovering that her long androgynous kind of body that used to torment her was actually, you know, all the rage suddenly in the 60s. <laughs> and she began finding designers she adored, such as Andre Courage. Uh, she also was beginning to get more in control over her music. She was not a huge fan of her first recordings, but uh, that's because she really didn't have any control over her sound or the people she worked with. But she was beginning to finally be able to kind of speak up in that regard. And she started traveling to London to work with a lot of English musicians to find the sound that she really longed for. She also began performing at the legendary Savoy Hotel Cabaret, uh, where she was bringing like record drawing crowds. And she had three three week engagements in two years, which at the time, I guess, was unheard of there. She really started beginning to meet a lot of the swinging London crowd. David Bailey, Eric Burdon from the Animals, mm-hmm. Catherine Deneuve, the Rolling Stones. Of them, she said, their strange behavior perplexed me. As I had been totally ignorant of drugs, soft or hard, until this time, I didn't realize they were all pretty much high. (laughs) They, on the other hand, seeing me most often without my boyfriend, thought I was a lesbian. So while she was still dating Jean-Marie at the time, she does say that Mick Jagger's beauty really fascinated her. And the feeling was mutual because Jagger actually named her his ideal beauty when he was interviewed for a French magazine. Cool. Yeah. 
um brian well, jones i mean she kind of looks like him in a way like doesn't oh, yeah. she have pretty cut cheekbones and big oh, yeah. full lips oh yeah yeah we know mick likes uh women who look like <laughs> him uh brian jones would often visit her and invited her once to his and anita's place she says i have a confused memory of my discomfiture not only because of the language barrier but also because of the strangely watchful attitude of the couple who first offered me a smoke that i turned down never imagining for a second that it was not an ordinary cigarette i no longer remember how i learned later that they were also lost in conjecture to about me trying to figure out if i had come there for drugs or because of sexual attraction for her or both together at no time did it ever cross their minds that I was just a fan of the group and thought of getting to know one of the musicians a little better constituted a sufficiently powerful motivation to spend an evening with them. They were just like, she wants to fuck us. Right? <laughs> just imagine that scene, though. I can totally picture, like, Brian and Anita, like, hoping that's why she's there and, like, maybe flirting a little. And she's just like, what am I doing here? Like thought we were just gonna chat you know oh my god oh can i tell you just a funny side story about smoking things um so i told you that i got to be an extra Mm -hmm. in a show called mrs america and so my i got to be in a scene with a bunch of other women all dressed up because it's 1974 yep and we're dancing in a lesbian bar did you have to smoke those awful herbal I cigarettes. smoked herbal cigarettes for oh, six hours straight that is so gross i loved it it was so much easier to after we were dancing we got to just be patrons like sitting at the bar and it was so much easier instead of miming fake conversation to just smoke a cigarette and look around and drink your drink that's why cigarettes are so popular in movies because it's easy to to dist- yeah, I yeah. absolutely agree with that. Also, I realized that if I wasn't smoking a cigarette and it was current day, I'd probably well, I don't know, it's a bar, but you know, nobody's got phones, yeah, so they're just smoking. Mm. And now we've replaced cigarettes with another addiction. Absolutely. Hmm. Anywho, Francois also had dinner with Paul, George, and Patty Boyd. Hell yeah! During that period, but she doesn't go into detail about that. But okay. Everyone loved Francois. Mm. Basically, they all wanted to know her. Uh, I suppose it's no surprise that another French admirer of her great beauty came knocking on the door. While Francois had no previous acting experience, Roger Vadim, hey, convinced her to take part in his 1963 film Chateau en Suède. This led to a small film career for Francois, who did some small cameos in films like What's New Pussycat, Masculine Feminine. And in 1966, John Frankenheimer asked her to join the cast of his super long race car film, Grand Prix. So kind of like her early record career, Francois is not super proud of her film work and really only took it because her manager and her boyfriend really encouraged her to. Uh, although her and Jean-Marie were in the middle, I guess, of like splitting up or realizing they weren't meant to be a couple while she was making Grand Prix. Uh, During filming, Francois also learned that one of her favorite artists, Bob Dylan, would be playing in Paris, and she got permission to leave the set for the occasion. She said that overall the concert was 
quite disappointing that the audience weren't happy. They were hissing at Bob. The intermission kept dragging on and on. She was stunned because this guy came up to her and was like, Bob refuses to go back on stage unless you come to his dressing room. Yes. Yes. I was hoping something crazy like this would happen. So she says, once in his presence, I was frightened by how thin he was, his cavernous face, his overlong fingernails. He was obviously headed for trouble and almost died a short while later in a motorcycle accident, which took him months to recover. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. So after the show, she ended up in his suite with some other people, and Dylan did his, uh, he did this with Marianne too, like, want to come to my room and listen to my latest album? So it hadn't been released in France yet, so she was like, of course. She says that he offered me the first pressing of his sublime Just Like a Woman, which became one of my bedside songs, as well as I Want You. At the time, I know, right? At the time, my English was worse than it is today, so I didn't really understand the words for just like a woman. I only understood you make love just like a woman, and then you ache just like a woman, but you break like a little girl. Which was very moving to me, very sentimental. He was impressed with me, but not by the singer, by the girl, I think. He had a kind of romantic fixation on a photo of me, but I didn't take it too seriously at the time. Recently, I got two drafts of letters written to him for me, and I finally realized that he was very serious about his fixation when he was very young. It moved me deeply when I read those letters. She says that they never really cross paths again, though, which is sad. But Dylan like wrote a poem about her. She's a photo of hers on one of his albums. So he definitely really? had a major crush. Yeah, he had a real crush. It's interesting because Fran has photos with you know Mick Jagger and Bob Dylan, and we know that they had a thing for her. So it was really fascinating to read that she didn't share that with them, at least not in the way that. I I mean, I was expecting like maybe a story there, but she was so fixated on the men that she was dating. And I don't think, you know, it ever occurred to her really that these guys were options or just that wasn't for her. Right. Cool. Yeah. 
but kind of like that yeah by now she's realizing her relationship with jean marie isn't healthy and it's time to move on so this is around the same time that her producer jack wolfson began working with jacques dutron so jacques was not yet the well-known musician that he became but he was an office assistant and was considered for francois as a guitar player for her next tour Jacques was also in a long relationship at the time. He was actually engaged and ended things days before his wedding. He said he was escaping a more or less arranged marriage, something he never really wanted. But as Fran said, in hindsight, I wonder if the deeper reason for his last minute cancellation, which should have aroused my suspicions, might have instead revived around a reflexive need to flee from any form of commitment. Not good. Yes. You know, I have an uncle Jacques. Yeah? Yeah, we call him, yes, he's pronounced Jacques. Jacques? Jacques. Jacques. Almost like with an, with an L. Jacques. Um, but my mom, who's English speaking, would call him Jock. Jock. Or sometimes just Jack. <laughs> well, whatever the reasons, these two n- newly single musicians, Francois and Jacques, I don't even know. Uh, They began hanging out around the fall of 1966. As the months progressed, Fan really began to fall for him. And they were still on a friendship level, though, because Jacques was a bit of a player. She would constantly see all these women around him. And she obviously didn't want to be just another girl. She had real feelings. But he never would lay a finger on her, even though, you know, she wanted him to. So she's in that state of longing and confusion and lust and heartbreak, you know, seeing all these girls being around him. Uh, She wrote a heartbreakingly beautiful song about her feelings toward him called which I think means why, why even try? Oh, um, Sasser is like, what is the use? What's the purpose? Yeah, why try? Yeah. Okay. Comme toi, j'ai un cœur qui ne peut rien promettre, à qui l'amour fait peur, mais qui t'aime peut-être. À quoi ça sert de le cacher? À quoi ça sert d'y échapper? Je n'ai rien à t'offrir Que ce que mes yeux voient Tu ne veux pas souffrir Mais qui ne souffre pas À quoi ça sert Francois actually bought a house in Corsica and she brought her friends, Jacques included, for like a mini vacation. And that's the first time she really found herself alone with him. And they were both nervous to be around each other, but Fran got drunk for the first time ever. <laughs> and uh, sadly, they ended up in bed together, but she can't even remember no. the night, their first night. <laughs> oh, brutal. But Poor I guess, Fran. yeah, after close to a year of kind of yearning for this man, she finally began dating him. <laughs> So things were on an up upswing for Fran. Her and Jacques, they're both making music, solo and together. She finally began to really enjoy work. That's not something she felt really comfortable in. She had a lot of anxiety, performance anxiety and things like that before um, and throughout her career. And 
she talks about some fun events that they were invited to, you know, swanky political circles. She talks about meeting Brigitte Bardot. She talks also about some onstage mishaps. Um, I thought it was interesting since we never really hear from that side of things. Like musicians don't really talk about that. She said, uh, in various performances, I have forgotten the words to a song. I've swallowed gnats in outdoor arenas, <laughs> jammed the heels of my pumps in the grooves of rotten boards used as a stage, been punched in the back <gasps> in the middle of a song by a musician swatting away a hornet, oh my God. left the stage the wrong way and had to r- and ran into a wall. <laughs> All of this was nothing in comparison to the torture of emitting wrong notes for three quarters of an hour because of acute laryngitis in front of a room jam-packed with people who paid a fortune to be there. So I just oh, thought that was interesting. Like That's you know, stressful. Yeah. So yeah, she she was never fully comfortable on stage. And So Francois wore that infamous Paco Rabanne steel dress at the Savoy for one of her performances there. The dress weighed 35 pounds. And she said that the crotch would slide down a little more every day so that the employees there had to have a pair of pincers so that they could pull uh, the dress back up. But it was certainly worth it. That Paco Rabanne dress was something else. I really want to see that. Oh, there it is. I just Googled a picture of it. That's amazing. Yeah. 35 pounds. Holy moly. So by 1968, she decided to take a break from touring to focus on recording, but also really to spend more time with Jacques. So one of the men she worked with suggested she start a company that she could produce her own recordings, which Vogue would then distribute. She was shocked when she read over the contract and saw that her share was 49% while the CEO of Vogue was to get 51. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, she fought this. The clauses were modified. And she would end up creating other song publishing companies later on. So Francois was working on some English music as well as French. Uh, One person she worked with in 1968 was Serge Gainsbourg. Very nice. She went to his place. How could they not? Oh, yeah. She had a, a, a deep relationship with him. And she talks a lot about him throughout the book as well. Uh, but at the time that she met him she went to his place and she says giant posters and photos of Brigitte Bardot with whom he was in love with swamped his working space she later mentions going to dinner with Serge a few years later and he was with Jane and Jane was away filming with Alan Delon and Serge was apparently out of his mind with worry that they would end up having an affair she said Valuing beauty so highly because he thought he was ugly, Serge considered it to be the primary factor of seduction and seemed incapable of imagining that many other people do not grant it the same importance nor do not think of it in the same way. We all have our insecurities, right? Oh, she says amazing things about Jane, too. That she's, She was just an amazing woman. Very fun. Very intelligent. We totally have to do. Yeah, we got to do Jane, Jane sometime. So another great thing happened to Francois in 68. She met her best friend, Lena, in Brazil when she was doing a promotional tour. As we know, Francois didn't grow up with many friends, so having a supportive one to confide in at this point was really special for her, especially since she was beginning to feel issues coming about with Jacques and him kind of pulling away. 
He would often cancel dates last minute. She felt a shift in his attitude toward her. She says this began happening in 1969, and instead of either of them breaking things off, they continued through this kind of destructive behavior for several years. Several years? Man, when I get that energy of, like, somebody wants to break up with me, oh, yeah. it usually happens within a matter of days. Well, this is an interesting thing. Yeah, this is when, I, like I said, what you would put up with, what you you know accept this is where in the book i was like damn Mm. uh she writes a lot you know of relatable situations where she would put up with the behavior because she cared so much and she you know would go out in hopes of bumping into him only to be heartbroken when she did and he was kind of indifferent to her presence uh she mentions even trying to get him back by picking up another man which of course made her feel awful in the morning because that's not you know what's something she wanted uh with more free time on her hands and the need to take her mind off of her personal life i thought you'd be really interested in this francois began taking courses in hypnotism and astrology Mm. and she was really getting into those things uh she mentions seeing a very respected astrologer who was adamant that jacques was not the man for her and that she would never blossom with him but she also saw a psychic around that time who told her their relationship would last a very long time nonetheless so that's neat i talked uh i had a friend over for coffee this morning and we talked about hypnotherapy yeah I neither, neither of us have tried it. I mean, I did last night. I did. Uh, I listened before bed to a hypnosis, but I've never actually gone to a hypnotherapist, but I would like to. Yeah, that's an interesting. Tell us if you have. Yeah. Tell us your experience. Yeah. So taking a break for a moment from the Jacques saga, um, I had to share that Francois's love of Elvis. Yes, please. Uh, when she found out he, he was performing in Vegas in 1969, she had a mission to go see him. She says, I've kept a dazzling memory of this Elvis Presley concert. All my hopes were realized. If I had one complaint, it was this. Elvis's atrociously kitschy outfit. But aside from that, his charisma was as fascinating as I had imagined. He sang like a god, doing just what he needed when it came to movement, neither too much nor too little, and even offered the luxury of joking with a previously unseen sense of humor, saying, for example, come on, come on, to his immobilized leg. (laughs) The icing on the cake, when the curtain went down, it stayed down. He did not come back to wave to the crowd, which I thought was very classy. So Francois actually did a cover of his song, Loving You, which she left at the reception desk in hopes that it would reach Elvis. She, she doesn't know if it ever did, but hopefully it, you know, it would be nice to think that Elvis got to hear that cover. I will spend my whole life loving you. As I mentioned, I was so curious about her and Jacques' relationship. 
uh, since it se- as you can tell just from Francois's first relationship, it seems like their needs are very different from one another. So when talking about sex and relationships, Francois said, everyone has a right to think or rather operate differently, but in my opinion, sexual relations without love reduces that other person to the status of object. It is equally debasing of the self as shown by the bitter taste these relationships most often leave behind. Yet, some people believe this type of relationship forms that first step that can lead to love. It is the exact opposite for me. I think sex is the crowning moment of the love that someone has inspired in me. Women are sometimes criticized for confusing love and desire. Is it because I am a woman? It is true I have trouble separating the two. If desire in its raw state is the impulse triggered by something or someone that is attractive, then I do not know what it is to only desire a man because he has sex appeal. Let's just say the few men I saw as sexy were those whose charm, combining ambiguity, sensitivity, and intelligence, touched me enough to inspire an attraction that went much further than a simple physical desire. Wow. So clearly Jacques isn't the type of man who agrees with Francois on this point. And yeah, they were very much on and off again, which was really tearing Fran's heart apart. And every time she's, this happened, she said, you know, she felt fundamentally destabilized because she never really could understand where his feelings lied. Like, did, he, did he love her? Was she just this woman here, you know? There are so many paragraphs in this book that just were so deeply fascinating. I wish I could share all of them because, again, she's just so well-spoken. I highly recommend everyone read this, even if you aren't a fan of the music. It it was just so interesting. So she began to realize that her sadness and unhealthy need for affection from Jacques was causing, you know, the opposite to happen. Like, it caused her more pain. She learned much later on around... This time, a mutual friend had asked Jacques what he felt for her, and he said, With Francois, it's different. I love her, and I don't want to be like everyone else, see no one but her at the beginning, and then cheat on her at the end. Mm. It would be better to start with the end and end at the beginning. So the problem, of course, is that when you also aren't communicating those feelings to your partner and you're telling, you know, your friend this, it becomes this heartbreaking game that, you know, they don't even know they're participating in. Yeah. So I'll read one paragraph of Francois where she's sort of, I guess, self-realization here. She's, I found it really interesting. She says, we think by showing the other person excessive submission and attention with a tireless, almost sacrificial patience, you will make yourself indispensable and desirable. In reality, playing the self-denial card, the extent of which reveals how much unconfessed greed is behind it, amounts to digging your own grave. You do not keep the flame lit by playing the paragon of virtue or by idealizing the other person so much that you devalue yourself. Mm -hmm. If I had given Jacques the impression that I was comfortable in my own skin and had a life away from him equal to his, I would have seen him more often. But for this to work, it would have had to have been the reality and not a clumsy act that someone as instinctive as him would have seen through, which would have driven him away even faster. So what's the takeaway in all this? For me, I found, I think, again, obviously no judgment. 
I think I feel like she sacrificed so much of her own happiness in hopes that he would come around and suddenly be the man she wanted him to be. Right. So have your own hobbies. Yeah. Take a vacation. Don't go on girls weekends. Don't put your happiness in someone else's hands. You have to find your own happiness first. You can't rely on a man and a man can't rely on a woman you can't put all of your happiness on one person that's just that's never going to work also i think it's just a matter of like respecting yourself and your needs that should always come first to you i think because that's the only way it's ever going to work if you're not satisfied i don't know how you can even give back you know she did make a point to try to develop her own personal life. She did try to go out more. She was open to, you know, new situations. Around this time, she was definitely using music as a form of therapy. In 1971, her album, The Question, came out. And that album was really about her confused feelings over Jacques and their situation. And is that's considered one of her finest albums. This may seem a little crazy, but that's because it is. <laughs> Uh, around this time, Francoise thinking about having a child. Yep. Uh, she could see her 30th approaching, and I guess that's a time where women get a little baby crazy if that's something they want in their life. Else they get put out to pasture. And uh, so she decided it was time to kind of discuss things with Jacques and tell him about her wish for a child with him and see like where they stood. She said, the balance sheet of our relationship was in the red. If having a child together was unimaginable, and if my only prospect was to see him 20 times a year, depending on his mood, I would rather call it quits. Smart. So he listened. Of course, he needed some time to think about what he wanted as well. Long story short, after a lot of effort, a lot of doctor's appointments, Francois became pregnant. So during her present pregnancy, Jacques was no more available than he was previously. So she speaks about, you know, feeling even lonelier than ever, while at the same time feeling immense joy at the thought of having a child. So again, still confusing, always a confusing time here. On June 16th, 1973, their son Thomas was born. Oh, that's such a cute name. Yeah. So French for Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Shock to absolutely no one. This did not change the dynamic between Francois and Jacques. Got that right. They were living separately. He would come around about three times a month until the day came with encouragement from Francois's mother that she finally asked Jacques, let's move in together and be a family. She was terrified of asking, of course, but came up with her own way of doing it. She said, I need a larger apartment. Should I look for one for Thomas and me or for the three of us? Yeah. So Jacques' immediate response was, you aren't taking into account how much grief it would cause my mother if I left. You heard that right. 30-something-year-old <laughs> successful Jacques was still living at home with his mom. Oh, God. Right. Francois was smart enough it's to... not 2019, Jacques. I know, right? A... No, I'm not going to shit on my lunch. <laughs> well... Housing was affordable back then, okay? Francois... What's your excuse? <laughs> Francois was smart enough to reply that she could certainly imagine the grief his mother would have felt if the father of her kids had told her she couldn't live with them because, you know, he didn't want to 
upset his mother. <laughs> so Jacques really couldn't argue that point. So a long hunt for the perfect flat began. In the meantime, Jacques' career was really taking off. He was not only making music, but he began a film career that still goes, still going strong today. Um, when he got cast to appear opposite the incredible French beauty Romy Schneider, Francois began hearing stories about how Romy always had love affairs with either her co-star or her director, and basically, it was inevitable, right? Yep. So Francois talks about how incredibly unhappy she was during this time, but again, she put up with it. So I guess this is the part of their story where Francois kind of begins to rationalize the situation she was in. I don't know if it's like rationalization versus revelation. I guess it is whatever you want it to be, right? So to still be with this man who clearly does not share the same views on relationships and sex as you do, Obviously, you need to either like move on or learn to live with their choices in a way that's not making it heartbreaking for you at every moment, right? She said, many years later, after many storms and periods of dead calm, after much heartbreak, but also much love on both of our parts, when time had done its work and Jacques was struck down, in turn, he suddenly said that he had never cheated on me. This statement would certainly have shocked the partners of his escapades, <laughs> but I clearly got what he meant. What happened below the belt didn't count. Too bad he had waited until the point of no return to express, in his convoluted fashion, what he had felt for me for so long, even if I half expected as much. What really is too bad is that we cannot do without those things that don't matter at the risk of losing what does. How can you be mad at the other person for being different from you when it is the very thing that attracts people to each other? How can you believe you are so wonderful that you should be enough for him in all things at all times? The heart cannot manage to follow what reasons find so easy to accept. Like crystal, it cracks or breaks at the first impact. Wow. What do you think of that? Well, I do agree with the sentiment of um, nobody can be all things to you. And that's like a famous Dan Savage quote, too, who's the you know relationship advice giver for yeah. over 20 years now. And so he's the kind of person that encourages um, ethical non-monogamy, because if somebody uh, isn't getting something that they need below the belt in a relationship that with clear boundaries and communication, whether it's a don't ask, don't tell situation or whatever is mutually agreed upon, then it can work and people can have a long lasting, loving, trusting relationship. I totally agree. I think if you're that other person like Francois is here and you feel nothing but heartbreak as it's happening, though, that's a clear sign that you're not the type of person who can handle that they weren't compatible yeah they weren't maybe it was in terms of like a relationship or sexually but they weren't compatible in that sense yeah. but you know she's like you have to think about the time too and you know trying to make it work and you love somebody so much or maybe you do settle and go well things aren't great in this respect but everything else is amazing in this respect and it kind of made me think too at a point where she was talking about the way that she shared herself in sexual relationships with people and how it was the ultimate, you know, culmination of uh, how they loved each other. And, you know, I can kind of think back and go, mm, well, 
I wonder what would happen if I got to do everything over again and only really have relationships with people that actually were worthy of like my time and energy and physical being and things like that. Yeah. If that would affect myself energetically at all or not. I don't know. I think she could have afforded to have a little bit more fun than she did. You Mm -hmm. know, like that beautiful, like, you know, Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan. I don't know. Like she, it it would have been nice if she could have had a happy medium. Yeah. And it would have been interesting. Do you think that would have even been possible with Jacques? I wonder if she did feel the same way that he did in respect to that, if he would have been okay with her having oh, these the double standard. Yeah. The double standard. Good good point. So I researched a little further because I love Romy Schneider. And Jacques has since said that that situation was awful because, again, he was so different from the women where, you know, he had no feelings. But Romy was also apparently pretty heartbroken over the situation because, yeah, he didn't want a relationship with her. It was sex. I have no idea if Jacques communicated with all these women he had affairs with about this, you know, up front, or if they were like Francois, who were like putting their heart in only to be crushed by him in this situation. But both, you know, Francois and Romy were getting their hearts trampled on by him at this point. Pretty sure Jacques ended the affair when filming was over. And Francois did her best to move forward and focus on other things like her music, her passion for astrology, and finding their new home, which they moved into when Thomas was around 11. So in 1975, Jacques did a film called The Good and the Wicked, which involved a lot of improvisation. And Francois said she went to the premiere of the film, and she was shocked and disturbed by it because he used words from their most intimate moments in the film. Mm-hmm. So Jacques was using his relationship with Francois's source material for both music and film at this point. Her relationship with her father, as I mentioned, was kind of non-existent. Um, he was another one of those shitty parents who hid the fact that he had kids from the world until one of them became famous and suddenly he was more than happy to share that information with people francois had found out some shocking revelations about her father very close to his death Uh, a young man came to her and basically tried to blackmail her it turned out that her father was a homosexual and he was picking up some young men and i think more than one of them had actually tried to kind of blackmail him over that Her father passed away in 1981 after being beaten, most likely by one of these young men that he picked up. Well, that sucks. Yeah. But Francois was amazing when she, the guy tried to blackmail her. She was just like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, you're not blackmailing me. Like, do what you want. How are you freed off? Yeah, exactly. So another big thing happened in 1981. Um, Francois noticed a lump in her breast. She had to go through the process and fear of finding out if it was cancer or not. It wasn't. Uh, But this ordeal had her thinking about the future. She decided to go to a lawyer to get things in order should anything happen to her. And the the lawyer suggested it would be a good idea if her and Jacques got married. Because I suppose that simplifies certain issues in that regard. So long story short, they both agreed. Marriage seemed sensible. There was no romance in the situation or in their wedding. They got married April 1st, 1981, with a handful of friends in attendance in Corsica. Uh, She says, At the moment we went to the town hall, I had an altercation on the doorstep with my future husband. He had not given any thought to the wedding rings, the sole jewel that finds favor in my eyes, and this sign of casualness was painful. Nevertheless, they got married. 
Their wedding night didn't go exactly as planned either. She had just had the operation to remove the lump and she was kind of still recovering. She said, my recent operation had weakened me and I went to bed around 1 a.m. hoping my new husband would not be long in joining me. From one glass to another, he did not make it until past three. Nothing had changed. His proximity electrified me, but he had exhausted his reserves on other pursuits. He slept like a log after going through the trouble of asking me in a whisper if I was happy. Hopes for happy. Yeah, right? Hopes for a night of lovemaking after a 14-year relationship are unrealistic, and despite the wave of sorrow this realization brought, the tenderness with which he asked me that question made me melt. See, I feel like she's just grasping onto crumbs here, right? Like yeah. he gives just enough where she'll she'll just take anything. Asking like, "Are you happy?" I forgot that I even needed to give you a wing, a, a wing, a ring on our wedding day, and then yeah, not even you know a loving wedding night. Ugh. Ugh. But Ugh. I mean. I'm curious to know when all is said and done, like she's still alive today, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, presumably he isn't. You I'm know, not, I'm not going to jump ahead, but I mean, did that marriage work out for either of them in the end? Let's hear it. Give it to me. So Francois couldn't stay long for the honeymoon, but you know, had, she had medical and professional things back in France, and she asked Jacques several times to come back with her, but he didn't. She said, the day of my departure, I was forced to realize that he had given it no thought. And because of our short stay in Corsica had been hopelessly platonic, when we said our goodbyes at the airport, I angrily shouted, this is definitely the last time I ever get married. (laughs) I did it without revealing how heavy my heart felt in the vague hope that he would enjoy my humor. I recently heard Jean-Marie on the radio, uh, say that there had not been many men in my life, but all of them had made me wait. This was such a striking summary of my personal life that I could hardly keep from crying. Yeah. Right? Yep. I mean, she's so talented. And obviously, Google the pictures. She's so beautiful. And clearly has, like, so much love to give. Yeah. Oh, that's so true, too. That's such a good point that it just almost got wasted on Jacques, the prick of the century so (laughs) professionally francois was entering a new realm one i think he would really enjoy she had this idea to do a show which she interviewed famous french musicians and actors using their birth chart um amazing right yes i do love that actually that's gonna be our new podcast (laughs) so a graphologist would draw up their psychological portrait using their handwriting and this got the green light so she had a weekly show called between the lines between the signs shit that's a good name yes so many fresh we might have to edit that out that's too good of an idea (laughs) many french artists were on it uh but a specific person she talks about was serge uh he and jane had separated and he was in a very bad way and the interview went horribly he was very like (laughs) curt he was in a bad mood he argued every point um, oh, no, 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 I, uh, that is not my chart. Uh, I do not agree with that at all. Exactly. So in France... I do not like that at all. I don't know what you're talking about. In Francois' words, she said it was complete carnage. <laughs> I wish I could watch this. But afterwards, she said that Serge asked her to go for a drink and she felt, like, obligated to go. So she said, we had hardly settled down when he gazed at me in a most unfriendly way and blurted out... 
Jane left me because of my polygamy. How do you deal with it? She said, the sky came crashing down on my head. I felt devastated, and he did not refrain from driving the point home. What was my secret? How did I manage to tolerate what Jane could never accept? I only remember drowning in my emotions and not how I defended myself in order to save face. Hmm. What's with all these guys with these incredible fucking women not feeling like that's enough? More, more, more. How do you like me? Exactly. I don't know. It's just like uh, these guys on Tinder in Toronto. Yeah. I mean, it's literally the dating scene in Toronto. They've got something great and they're like, you know, I want to see what else is out there. Exactly. She writes some more about Serge in this time, his excessive drinking, his depression over losing Jane. Yeah, it's just crazy how these men could love these women so much, yet still refuse to stop sleeping with random ones that they have zero feelings for. If that's like the only problem in your relationship, deal with it. So unless, yeah, unless both parties feel exactly the same way about that kind of stuff, I just feel like, you know, someone's always going to be hurt and don't put up with that if you're the one being hurt, you know? Mm-hmm. After Jane, he was with a woman named Bamboo. Um, pardon me, Bamboo. Bamboo. That's amazing. B-A-M-B-O-U. Bamboo? That, that's Bamboo. Bamboo. So, Francois. That's the best name I've yeah, ever heard. Right? She shares some more stories about them uh, and Serge's deterioration until his death. Uh, she said that when he passed away, it felt not only like the end of an era, but the end of their youth. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So in 1988, Francois's contract with RMC wasn't renewed, but that led to something positive. She met a man named Alan Puglia. He, he suggested she manage one of his labels in his production company. So she was excited to kind of work on her career and grow as an artistic director and all of that. Um, something else completely, extremely unexpected happened in 1988. I was born. That's right. <laughs> Francois was like, oh my God, there's this woman named Chantel. No. And she's going to start a podcast based on my video series. So Francois met and fell hard for another man. Nice. Good. But. No. Yes. That relationship didn't happen because the man wasn't responsive to the idea of them being together. I think he realized how much issues she had and, you know, dealing with that. And he just didn't want to go there. That whole situation caused Francois a great deal of inner turmoil. She really felt heartbroken and rejected by this other man that she had developed these feelings for. And she was also kind of messed up emotionally about, you know, her actual family life and what those emotions meant for, you know, Jacques and their family. So she called that point in her life her midlife crisis. I think this is when she really did begin to reflect on her role in the relationships she's had and she was really a mess, you know, trying to figure things out. She never mentioned the situation to Jacques uh, while it was happening. But three years later, in a conversation, she did bring it up with Jacques. Jacques was in one of his moods and it hurt her, though she said that ever since her midlife crisis, as she said, um, his indifference, Jacques' indifference to her had less of an effect on her. She, she, she wasn't in as much pain, I guess. But this particular evening, she, he was annoying her and she says, 
As a story to measure how great my partner's doom and gloom was, I told him about what had happened to me. Since everything was all the same to him, I could clearly tell him everything. (laughs) His violent reaction was completely unexpected, coming as it did from someone who had given me the impression that I was part of the furniture. He explained that even if he spotted the slightest risk of falling in love with another woman, he took steps to avoid the danger. In other words, not satisfied with radically separating what happened below the belt from everything else, he claimed to control what could not be controlled. For my part, I told him that a person cannot decide to fall in love. When you see that you have, it's too late. The damage has been done without your knowing, much less choosing. I had to accept the obvious. Our opposite ways of dealing with things had led into a dialogue of the death. So he's like, all right, so like, I can fuck, but you can't fall in love. It's different. Yeah. And it happened three years and they're previous. Both a choice. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what I'm super grateful for is that um, my boyfriend TJ, love of my life, bless him, does not have moods. He it's never like he's in a mood yeah, today. I can't talk to him or today. like this. Yeah, but because he's in a mood. That's good. Like I've known this guy for five years now, and we've been monogamous for two. And he has never been in a mood. Yeah. You just shouldn't have to put up with moods, especially if they make you feel like part of the furniture, as she said. I've been in a mood. I've, I have <laughs> moods. <laughs> <laughs> so Francois' admission about having feelings toward another man, you know, it kind of flipped the tables. Jacques became this emotional mess, uh, you know, that Francois had, you know, all those years been and he was really going off the rails he was having violent verbal outbursts crying spells he threatened to kill himself once he actually burst in on francois working with an editor for a magazine convinced she was with the other man jacques ended up moving out to work on an album and i suppose as a punishment to francois he had some public affair with a woman how what an idiot but francois said it did the opposite and made her feel less guilty she said while the rift between us was obvious we did not cut our bridges because of it nor have we ever cut them so life went on their son Thomas is now about 16 like now no this is in the 90s right right sorry um though he grew up with all the opportunities to grow as a musician he always kind of shunned that i guess when you have two musician parents the only way to rebel is you know to do Join the, the army yeah <laughs> but as a teenager he was discovering his own kind of music he decided he wanted to pursue the guitar his idol was django Rein- reinhardt and francois you know was worried like any parent when their kid decides to be a musician but you know, they were very supportive about him kind of pursuing that. In the 90s, Francois was quite successful in regards to music and collaborations. Malcolm McLaren, whose name you might recognize as the man who kind of put together the Sex Pistols, he was working on a project. He contacted Francois to be a part of that. That led to her getting another record deal, focusing on her own music again. She released her only album in the 90s called La Danger. <laughs> le danger le danger but so, i i like le danger yeah that's that's my french and english side coming out love it <laughs> so francois was really proud of that album she believed it lyrically to be her best work she also got to work with damon alburn and the other 
members of Blur. Cool. They were fans of hers and contacted her in 1995. They came to France. They recorded a new version of their song, To The End. Check out the music video on YouTube. It's them in the studio together. In 1997, she participated in another project that Virgin Records was doing. They were having female artists cover jazz standards, and it was meant to be like only female, but Iggy Pop really wanted to do something. So Francois and Iggy did a duet of I'll Be Seeing You. Oh, sweet. Uh, It turned out to be one of the favorite songs that she ever recorded. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places that this heart of mine embraces all day through In the small cafe The park across the way The children's carousel The chestnut trees The wishing well I'll be seeing you Every lovely summer's day While she didn't work firsthand with Eric Clapton, she got permission from him to use an instrumental piece uh, for a song that she wrote. And Clapton invited her to a concert. And after she got to meet him and said that when he came on stage, he started playing the chords of that song, obviously just um, for her and that she thought that was really sweet and everything. She and Jack actually did a duet together. I think it'd been their first time working professionally in years. So, obviously, everyone's wondering what happened between Francois and Jacques. After Francois's revelation and throughout the 90s, she said, My relationship with Jacques took the form of a singular friendship. What more could we have hoped for after 33 years? (laughs) Yeah. So they still lived together throughout that all. Not surprising, Jacques continued to see other women. He fell in love with one named Sylvie Duval. They met in 1997 on set. By now, Francois was free of any kind of hurt and jealousy. She was happy for them. She writes, We should not merely accept, we should rejoice when someone else gives the man in your life what you are no longer able to give him. Okay. Right? I See, don't know. the thing that bothers me the most about that in regards to like her book and everything is that that's great, but what are you getting? Is, is he happy for you? I don't think she's had another relationship since him. I think that's it for her. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know why you should be happy for someone else if like. I, that's yeah, healthy. I kind of want to just put like, my head down on the microphone right now. I, it was—it's just such a—it was Aww, such a strange. She just book. deserves better, you know. Exactly, and also because she's so well spoken about those things, and she like reading her book actually made me think about my past relationships and future ones. What I want, what I don't want, things like that. It's just interesting, almost getting advice from someone who's so wise, but yet never took their own advice in a way, you know. It was, it was bizarre. Yeah, true. Uh, I think after 
meeting Sylvie, that's when Jacques finally moved out. And probably for the best. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they are still close. They, you know, are still family. They've been there for each other throughout issues in their life. Like in 2004, Francois was diagnosed with lymphoma. Mm. Um, she is still alive. She fought like a champ. He was there for her. She still works on music. She's released six albums since 2000. The latest one was last year. Jacques still releases music and acts. And wow. their son, yeah, their son Thomas is now a well-known jazz guitarist who tours the world. Oh, neat. Yeah. So this book, The Despair of Monkeys and Other Trifles, it came out in France in 2008, but was only published in English in 2018. I'm sure you're curious about the title. Francois says it was named after her favorite tree. She writes, its fairly slender trunk supports a multitude of long, thin branches that gracefully curve above the ground. It is surely for protection that they are studded with sharp leaves. I do not know whether I am attracted to it because I am also a member of its family or because it reminds me of the men who have caused me despair. They too discourage people from getting too close by making themselves inaccessible or by casting thorns. Fragile as they were, how could they have done otherwise? She's a poet. Yeah. So that's Francois's story. This is, uh, I've said this before at the end of an episode when I go, oh my God. This is why I continue to love what we're doing. Because when I presented Olivia Harrison, you know who she is. Yeah. You know, I don't have to say, yeah, to tell you. You still, you get to know the story that you didn't know, but you know who she is. And then, you know, I didn't know about Francoise Hardy at all. Mm-hmm. And then to know that she had such a profound influence on, like, French music, culture, that Dylan was there, Mick Jagger, pop, these relationships. I had no idea that she also is weaved into the fabric of rock and roll history. And that's what I love, is bringing these women's stories and their voices um, yeah, to the public's knowledge if they didn't already know. And I admire her honesty in this book, especially because she has had a public relationship with this man. Like they're very, very well known in France. And I guess when you hear that someone's been married for like 40 years, you have assumptions of what that marriage was like. And you at least assume enough of it was very happy and loving in a certain way. So it was interesting to find out that what I thought wasn't the case and also just learning, you know, different human beings have different relationships. And while it might not work for other people, maybe it works for someone else. And it's just fascinating to hear different types. And also, yeah, you can learn what you want and what you don't want from hearing someone else's story. And yeah, this was a fascinating Well, that's one why for me. it's really cool when the episode that you're researching aligns pretty well with your life. Like, it gave you an opportunity to reflect on some of your past relationships and where you want to go into the future. And then, like, when I did Olivia and George, when they were talking about their spiritual journey, I got to kind of reevaluate my own and mm-hmm. a lot of the other supplemental books I was reading just on my own for my own spiritual growth really aligned with that episode so there's a lot of these really nice synchronicities and while you know it's so wonderful to be able to put this out for other people's entertainment and knowledge it's also really nice to personally get some things absolutely as well yeah 
I hope thank you. You, you, you're welcome. Great episode. I hope other people can get something out of that too. And I hope you guys check out the book because again, she's just, can you repeat the name of the book? The Despair of Monkeys and Other Trifles. Yes. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. In the meantime, you can go on Instagram and check us out at Muses Podcast. We have a nice little website at musespod.com. And make sure to check out Pantheon Podcasts. That's right. So many good ones up now. It's incredible. It just keeps getting stronger stronger and stronger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. We love you so much. We cherish you. See you next time. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.